Matt tried to pawn it off on me. It was Matt um, behind it all, but the Vikings are kicking off at 3.40, and so we thought we'd rather more people come together, and, and so we shifted to 2 p.m. today. But what really makes this a special service um, is that we are celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today um, as a community of people practicing the ways of Jesus. I think there's probably not a more important time, especially in our culture, in our country right now, to pause and remember and celebrate um, Dr. King. We were speaking earlier that so often we run into each service each week and we're going fast and we're, but we really did take time this week to pause and to talk about and to try to practice how important it is to stop and remember this man. Because not only a minister and an activist, um, someone who obviously not just is the leader of the civil rights movement, but changed the landscape of everything. But he was a man that was inspired and informed by Jesus. And this is a time in our world and in our lives that we need to look to someone like Dr. King and be inspired and informed as he was by Jesus Christ as we operate in the world. I think as a community, we're a white community, I think one of the things is we try to practice the ways of Jesus. We are trying to step forward in humility and uh, the realization that our time has come. Our time has come that it's our turn to listen, to look to leaders who can teach us about our own privilege, our role in that, the way we live that out without even realizing it. So our time has come to listen and to own so that we might love better, that we might become part of that peacemaking movement that we saw in Dr. King, that we see in people like Dr. Nakima Levy-Pounds, who we are so privileged to have come and speak to us today. Um, Dr. Levy Pounds comes to us. She's a civil rights attorney, an activist, former law professor, um, so many, many more things. Uh, but I think she's a peacemaker above all things. She spoke with us last summer in the makers of Minneapolis, and people were blown away. Blown away of, as to how your faith is driven what you do politically. Um, that had a profound impact on so many of us blown away at, like Dr. King, your ability to see the humanity in every person, white or black, male or female. And so with that, could we wel warmly welcome Dr. Nakima Levy-Pounds. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. I feel like I'm standing between all of you in the Vikings game, so I, I will make sure that we wrap up on time because I don't want to hold back the fans, okay? My, my husband loves the Vikings, and so 
I get it. I get it. I'm not quite there because I grew up in L.A., so, but I get it. So it's truly a privilege and an honor to be here at the table with you all again today. And it's really amazing this weekend to think about the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King's legacy and so many others who fought during the civil rights movement has had a profound impact on my own life and the path that I've taken. And it's caused me to go back and look at history through a completely different lens than what I was taught in school, right? And most of us don't get the opportunity to do that. Some of us may not feel that it's necessary, but for me, it was very important so that I could understand how we got on the path that we're on today and why we are so divided in our society. I want to start out um, reciting a poem that I learned when I was about 12 years old. I was in school in uh, South Central Los Angeles, and I had teachers who were mostly African-American women who would encourage me and support me, who would give me opportunities to actually speak publicly as a child in front of adults around the city. And so this particular poem that I learned, it, it's something that has stuck with me because it taught me about the power of resistance to oppression. That's one of the key thing, themes that I'm gonna talk about today. It's called Song of the Awakened Negro by Ruby Berkeley Brown. I can succeed. I will succeed. Nothing is able to hold me back. I will succeed. I must succeed. I will not stay on the beaten track. I'm not a brute. I'm not a beast. I'm a man as God made me. I'm not insane, immoral, no. No more than other races be. Come on, 07. Come, 11. We used to say in other days, be gone, marked cards, and loaded dice, for we are facing other ways. Old superstitions, conjure women, you have no place on our new planes. You're helpless, hopeless, cast off, beaten. Intelligence has snapped your chains. I do not fear the dark of midnight. The sight of graveyards brings me no fear. Ghosts, hobgoblins, and childish terrors, I left you in a darker year. I am learning, too, to trust my brother. I'm knowing things for what they are. See, this is a new road I'm traveling. I've started, but I've not gone far. But I'll succeed. I must succeed. Nothing is able to hold me back. I can succeed. I will succeed. I will not die on the beaten track. Thank you. That poem really stuck with me as a child growing up in an inner city community in the aftermath of the assassination of Dr. King and seeing many of the promises that he spoke about, that he dreamed of, the things that he fought for, the things that he articulated, seeing those things not come to pass in my own community in Los Angeles. I grew up in a predominantly African-American and Latino community. I moved there when I was about eight years old. 
after growing up initially in Jackson, Mississippi. And Jackson, Mississippi was one of the key places in which things that um, focused on civil rights actually happened. So many black people were poor in Mississippi. They had come out of slavery. Some of them had become sharecroppers, but they were all underneath a Jim Crow system in Mississippi. And so my own family was, was impacted. So as a child, I'm learning the rules, the written rules and the unwritten rules of society, where I could go, where I could not go, what I could do, what I could not do, and what the consequences would be for me, even as a child, crossing some of those racial boundaries that existed in that particular community, right? And so as a kid growing up in Jackson, Mississippi, just eight years after Dr. King was assassinated, I remember looking around my community and wondering why everyone was poor. And even though the people in my community was, were poor, there was still a difference in terms of the poverty that I encountered in Jackson, in um, Los Angeles, California. In Jackson, Mississippi, although our family was poor, people cared about their neighbors. They shared with each other. So if someone was growing vegetables in their yard and you were hungry, you could always come over and get something to eat. If you did something and you got into trouble, your neighbor would discipline you and then your neighbor would call your mother and your mother would discipline you when you got home. So even though we were poor, there was still a very strong sense of community, but I remember also there being this sense of fear, a fear about not crossing certain lines within society. And I really didn't understand it as a kid. But later in life, when I began to study what had happened historically, it made a lot of sense to me. Think about the people in Mississippi who had come out of slavery, who had gone from slavery into a Jim Crow system, right? And we talk about Jim Crow. Some of you may be familiar with the system and some may not. But the Jim Crow system was a system of, of legalized segregation, particularly in the Deep South, where, you know, you were an African-American person, you wanted to drink out of a certain water fountain, it said for coloreds only, right? You could only drink out of that particular water fountain. White people drank out of fountains for whites only. Bathrooms for coloreds only um, and also for whites only. School system, same thing. Black people sent their children to blacks only schools, which usually had dilapidated uh, conditions that the children faced. Uh, textbooks that had been written all over um, or barely usable, a lack of supplies, and a lack of a quality education. They were forced to endure these issues. Now, this is after decades of their children not even being allowed to be educated in the first place under the brutal system of slavery, right? And so think about generations upon generations of black people having to endure a lack of access to education. And then finally, when the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution declares that black people are free from slavery, now a new system has emerged in which, yes, your children can have access to an education, but what kind of education? Is it a high quality education? Or is it a demeaning education that constantly reminds you of your second class citizenship in this country? That's what my ancestors had to deal with. And so 
people in Mississippi after having to deal with racial terror, you know, lynchings occurring, people being afraid of the police, people being afraid of violence from their white neighbors if they crossed the line or if there were allegations that they crossed the line. And in the midst of that terror and a lack of economic opportunity, suddenly the civil rights movement began, right? So it started December 1st of 1955 when a, a powerful woman by the name of Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat to a white man. And if you're anything like me, you've heard that story dozens of times, but if you're anything like me, you've also taken that story for granted dozens of times. I want us to think about the, the conditions in which Rosa Parks had to endure in the moment when she refused to give up her seat. Again, a period of time in the aftermath of slavery, Jim Crow system in place, certain water fountains you could drink out of, certain bathrooms you could use, couldn't go eat at certain restaurants, afraid of terrorism, afraid of white violence, knowing that the law allowed that type of discrimination. And being a woman, getting off of work, getting on the bus, sitting in the first set of seats that were reserved for black people. And then even then, that wasn't enough. A white man gets on the bus, he sees that all the seats reserved for white people are full, so what does he do? Turns to Rosa and demands that she give up her seat. Now, under normal conditions, Rosa probably would have just got up and moved on. Why? Because she didn't want the trouble, the consequences, the drama that could possibly unfold, the danger that could unfold by not following the law. Because again, the law allowed for these things to happen. But in that moment, Rosa Parks said no to that white man. And later stories about why she said no are so interesting to me in light of the current unfolding issues that we have surrounding um, African-Americans being more likely to be killed by police or vigilantes or security guards. Well, she said on that day when she refused to give up her seat, all she could think about was Emmett Till. Emmett Till, 14-year-old black boy, born in, in uh, Chicago, Illinois, family was from Money, Mississippi, had traveled there. His mom allowed him to travel by train reluctantly to go visit relatives in Mississippi. And at 14 years old, he had been used to integration in Chicago. And he didn't understand in Mississippi why you, you couldn't interact normally with a white person, why you had to walk with your head down, why you had to watch your words, why you had to watch the, how, how things appeared to people in the community. He didn't worry about that. He was 14. He had gone to school with white children. And so one day he said, I'm gonna, when I go into this store, I'm going to whistle at, at this lady. And the lady in question, uh, Carolyn Bryant, owned, she and her husband owned the particular store that Emmett Till and his, fam and his um, cousins were in that day. And as he walked out of the store, the stories say that he either whistled at her or said, bye, baby. Right? And then there's a side that says he didn't say anything, that he just walked out. But what happened in the days after that are for the history books. The um, husband of Carolyn Bryant and his brother came to Emmett Till's uncle's house in the middle of the night, dragged this 14-year-old kid out of bed, and took him to a shed, and they 
beat him and beat him and beat him and beat him, cut off some of his members, gouged out his eye, and shot him through his body in the Tallahatchie River. And the sad part about all of this was that Emmett Till's mother had to see her son's face and be reminded of why she left Mississippi in the first place. She had moved to Chicago so that her son wouldn't have to endure the type of Jim Crow system that she had to live under as a girl. And so all of her fears came to pass when they pulled up her son's body. His face was unrecognizable. The only way that they knew that it was him was from a piece of jewelry that he still had on his body. And she demanded an open casket. And she said, I want America to see the ugliness of racial hatred, right? Because for so many people, it is invisible. I mentioned earlier about the signs in the bathrooms and the water fountains, how many black people constantly being reminded of their second-class citizenship and their inferiority in places like Mississippi, but how many white people went right to the whites-only water fountain, used the whites-only bathroom, ate at whites-only lunch counters, slept at whites-only hotels, and sent their children to all white schools and thought that it was acceptable. Why? Because that's what the law said. And how many of those white people called themselves Christians and went to church day in and day out claiming that they worship God claiming that they believed in the equality of all people, claiming that they cared about their neighbors, claiming that they saw the difference between what the world says is important versus what the kingdom says, but what did they do? They went right along with that Jim Crow system of oppression, right? It's important for us to understand the fact that white people were complicit in what happened in the Jim Crow South. That not only were they complicit, but they taught their children to follow and obey the rules of the Jim Crow South. When terrorism happened, even if they weren't the ones out there doing it, out there killing people, out there lynching people, guess what, oftentimes they were silent in the face of that type of brutality. And after they would read about someone getting lynched, what would they do? Go to work the next day like nothing ever happened or talk about it at work. And then that Sunday, what would they do? Go to church like nothing ever happened and not make the connection between their life as people of faith and their life in the outside world in terms of whether or not there was congruence with what they said that they believed versus what they were actually practicing, which was inconsistent with the gospel message of people being equal, of people caring about their neighbors, of, of the values that we're supposed to have as kingdom people. See, that's what racism does in this type of society. It makes us forget the values that we claim that we have. That's why Dr. King said we need a revolution of values. He talked about the triple giants of, of racism, of militarism, of extreme materialism, and how those giants were harming our society and keeping us divided and causing us to walk away and not practice the values that we claim that we hold. And it's very easy for us to look at the people in the South who not only wrote those laws that allowed the Jim Crow system to exist, but also those who practice under 
the Jim Crow regime, and we can judge them and say, well, that happened over there. Those people are, you know, wicked. Those people are racist. Those people are white supremacists. And we can name off a whole bunch of things that we have to say about those people, but we have to realize that those people are really us, right? We can point to one geographic location in the country and point the finger, but as they say, when you point one finger, two are pointing back at you, right? So there's a, a book that, that I love. It's called The Rise and Fall of Jim Crow by Richard Wormser. And I'm going to read um, something that I think is really well connected to what we're facing right now and who we are in the North and the fact that Northern racism has been virtually unexamined, right? We've let ourselves off the hook. We pat ourselves on the back, especially in Minnesota, for being number one at just about everything, everything that's good and great, but we're also number one in terms of the racial disparities that exist. We have some major problems here, which are evidence that Dr. King's dream has not been fulfilled. Even though we celebrate his legacy year after year, it has become anemic. It, it, it bears no real meaning if we're not practicing the things that we preach and working to change the things in our society that are still producing oppression. So it says in 1828, Jim Crow was born. He began his strange career as a minstrel caricature of a black man created by a white man, Thomas Daddy Rice, to amuse white audiences. By the 1880s, Jim Crow had become synonymous with the complex system of racial laws and customs in the South that ensured white social, legal, and political domination of blacks. Blacks were segregated, deprived of their right to vote, and subjected to verbal abuse, discrimination, and violence without redress in the courts or support by the white community. It was in the North that the first Jim Crow laws were passed. Blacks in the North were prohibited from voting in all but five New England states. Schools and public accommodations were segregated. Illinois and Oregon barred blacks from entering the state. Blacks in every Northern city were restricted to ghettos in the most unsanitary and rundown areas and forced to take menial jobs that white men rejected. White supremacy was as much a part of the Democratic Party in the North as it was in the South. Those words can be difficult to hear because it forces us to hold up a mirror to the way in which we are operating in our society. And when we see these injustices happening across the board, whether it be in education, whether it be in looking at the system of mass incarceration, where we currently have 2.3 million people incarcerated, and where I saw the effects of the war on drugs, of mass incarceration, of biased policing in my community as a child growing up in Los Angeles, where poor people were largely being incarcerated, whether we're looking at the high rates of unemployment that are facing communities of color, that are facing our immigrant populations, that are facing people with disabilities, right? Many of us in this room have access to opportunity because of the fact that we have some form of privilege. Privilege that we didn't earn. 
And I'm saying we, even though I'm African-American and I have faced discrimination, I have faced racism, I've had to deal with white supremacy in institutions and just on a personal level from people who I've interacted with, I still know that I have a form of privilege because of the fact that I've had access to a quality education. When I was 14, I went off to a boarding school in New England, and I was there with pr pr predominantly white, wealthy children. And so I was able to gain access to an education that their parents were able to pay for. And that gave me a head start, or, or at least it, it allowed me to catch up so that I could be in the place where I could be, become a law professor and run for office and do the things that I've been able to do. So I have some form of privilege. Most of us won't acknowledge that we have privilege. We think, well, I worked hard and that's how I got here. Well, what kind of head start did you get? Was it an inheritance? Did your parents pass down social capital, intellectual capital, financial capital that helped you get a head start in life? Did you have access to good schools because your parents could move into a zip code where the best schools were present? Or were you relegated to schools in the inner city where sometimes you face dilapidated conditions? Or in the case of kids in Baltimore trying to learn in freezing cold temperatures because people haven't taken care of their responsibilities or not being served adequate meals in some parts of town, which is happening right here in the city of Minneapolis. Many of us have had ample access to opportunity, but as people of faith, what are we doing with it? Is it about us? Or is it about the gifts and the talents that we've been blessed with and how we utilize those gifts and talents and resources to be a blessing to others, to be a blessing to our neighbors? And I think about this in the context of even with the Super Bowl coming to town, right? I'm just like many Americans who have tuned in year after year to watch the Super Bowl. Even if I don't really care for the teams who are playing, it's the excitement, it's all the energy that's around it. It's the biggest game all year that most of us watch. But think about what is happening here in Minneapolis. We don't know how our homeless people are going to be treated once the Super Bowl starts or how they're being treated right now. But where is the outcry from all of us who have access to privilege, who have a roof over our heads? Where is the outcry? Where are the calls to our elected officials asking how our homeless populations are going to be treated and how they're being treated right now. That's the power that we have. But how many of us are willing to use our power to speak truth to power? That's what Dr. King demonstrated. That's what Rosa Parks demonstrated. Like she said, on that day when she refused to give up her seat, all she could think about was Emmett Till. Now this, again, was a, a black woman in a place where she had to deal with racism, white supremacy, sexism, being from a lower socioeconomic class, you could look at those attributes and say, Rosa Parks had no power. Who is she to resist the law and to refuse to give up her seat to a dignified white man? But in that moment, she took the power and said, I'm gonna take a stand because not only are we impacted as black adults under this Jim Crow system, but now you're coming after our children. Now you have an innocent black boy who was killed and now represents the ugliness of racism that has been hidden within our society. And it was hidden, but it was in plain view because everyone who participated in that Jim Crow system became a part of it, gave life to it. 
And most did absolutely nothing to stop it. So because Rosa Parks made that courageous decision, she was able to spark a movement. And as a result of that movement, a young preacher by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. emerged. He didn't volunteer and say, hey, I want to lead this movement. And I don't blame him. Because anytime you step out and you speak truth to power and you challenge the status quo, you become a target. This is something that I have experienced for years, along with many other people who have stood on the front lines. People reject you when, they, when you speak the truth. They claim they want to hear it, but when you start operating like Dr. King said and using unarmed truth, you find out the truth that they really don't want to hear it. Right, that they have ears, but they willfully will not hear the truth. They have eyes, but they willfully will not see the truth. And so where does that leave you as a person who takes a stand? He was a husband and a father of young children at the time, but people drafted him into the movement. They said, we need you. We need your intellect. We need the power of your preaching to help lead this movement. So at 20-something years old, 20-something, can you imagine those of you who are in your 20s being called to lead a movement that would ultimately strike down the Jim Crow system in this country. I cannot imagine it. But that's what happened to Dr. King. And he stood up and he spoke the truth. And over the years, what have we tried to do? We've tried to whitewash Dr. King's image. We've tried to select the quotes and the speeches that appeal to us, that make us feel safe, that make us feel comfortable in our own racism, right? And we feel comfortable because we can look at Charlottesville and say, yep, those are the racists. They have the tiki torches. They're marching. They're out there engaging in violence. They're part of the alt-right. They're part of this and that. Those are the racists. And yes, those are the racists. But those aren't the only ones, right? A lot of us, because of the kind of society that we live in, we wind up practicing racism and participating in white supremacy, sometimes without even being conscious of it. Because that's the way that our society is structured. That's the way that many of our laws are structured. And I've talked before, as I mentioned earlier, about the Emancipation Proclamation being passed and signed into law, and the 13th Amendment to the Constitution being passed. 13th Amendment was supposed to abolish slavery. Right? 1865, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall be allowed except if one has been duly convicted of a crime. So if we had been serious in this country about abolishing slavery, we just would have said neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall ever be allowed again. Instead, we opened the door to a new form of slavery and indentured servitude through the criminal justice system. And what happened in many southern states? They changed their laws on the books to make standard behavior by black men a crime. So black men talking too loud, a crime. Hanging out late at night, a crime. Being unemployed, a crime. And a criminal justice system that during the days of slavery had been comprised of primarily white men suddenly flipped and was comprised primarily of African American men. That happened through our laws. And most of us, because it may not be personally happening to us, we just tune out 
and we say, well, there must be a reason, or they violated the law. Well, what if the law is unjust? Like St. Augustine said, an unjust law is no law at all. But so often when we're taking a stand and we're saying, let's examine these laws, people get mad. Or they get mad when you violate the law in order to challenge the injustices of a law, right? And I'm talking about the protests, the protests that happened during the 50s and 60s where Dr. King and others routinely violated the law to get their point across that the laws were unjust, that they were producing oppression, that they were legalizing second-class citizenship for African Americans and other people of color. So they set out to challenge those laws. They faced brutality from police officers. They faced vicious police dogs. They faced water hoses to challenge unjust laws. The masses of people didn't want to hear it. They said, why would you violate the law? Why are you disrupting the peace? So Dr. King, a man that we revere now that he's been assassinated, and whose image we've attempted to whitewash, stood up and challenged the injustices and the laws and he was a target, his family was a target, other civil rights leaders were targets. And ultimately we know that on April 4th of 1968, Dr. King was assassinated, struck down, cut down, silenced. But through the rest of us, his words have the power to live on. But it's gonna require something if we want to invoke the words of Dr. King and the power of Dr. King to disrupt the systems that are in place and to disrupt the status quo. And when you start talking about disruption, start talking about protest, people become afraid. Why? Because that means that change is going to happen. Discomfort is going to happen. Something is going to be shaken that is different from maybe what we have previously experienced. And some of us will run from that. Why? Because it means that our day-to-day -day lives, where we have comfort, where we have access to opportunity, may be disrupted in some form or fashion. But I would argue that some type of disruption is necessary to break down what is happening with the status quo. Because too many people are being impacted under this current system. Again, when we operate within the confines of this system, we're going to practice white supremacy. Why? Because our institutions and our laws and our systems were built upon the foundation of white supremacy. It hasn't been taught that way to us in school. We've been given revisionist history in school and bits and pieces of that. So most of us have no idea of what has actually occurred, how people have been impacted, how the laws continue to oppress people and how it goes from one generation to the next unless some type of disruption happened. So when I think about the legacy of Dr. King, I think about that legacy of disrupting the status quo. That's what they did. They disrupted the status quo. They went into the halls of power. Dr. King would have one-on-one -on -one meetings with the president saying, we need the laws changed and feeling pressure to, to call off protests and to call off demonstrations because it made white people uncomfortable. But in the midst of the death threats, in the midst of having to face surveillance by our central intelligence agencies, in the midst of having to deal with his own discrimination that he was facing, he continued to take a stand and to rise up and to speak truth to power. So even though he's been assassinated, that mantle is still out there. That mantle of leadership that he brought forward 
saying that we need to come together. We can't continue to be divided. And some people think that division emerges when they see a freeway shut down. Oh, there they go again. There's Black Lives Matter. There's these people wreaking havoc. What are they doing out there? Why don't they just go talk to legislators? They can change the law. Well, we have a wonderful legislator right here, Senator Patricia Torres Ray. Thank you for joining us today. And what, what she can tell you is that it's very difficult to get the laws changed. It's very difficult to shift policy, especially when it's just a small number of people who are standing up speaking the truth. I don't know how many times that I've been to the legislature and I've seen audiences that look just like this, predominantly white. And most of the reasons that they're there for are not reasons that have to do anything with racial inequality or inequity, that have to do anything with our system of mass incarceration right here in the state of Minnesota, that have to do anything with racial profiling that occurs through the police, or the fact that police are still able to kill people with impunity, or the fact that our system of child protection is rife with racial disparities and inequities and in people, especially children of color, being pulled away from their families without adequate due process, without access to an attorney, with people who don't understand their cultural practices and their heritage making key decisions about whether or not a family will be able to stay together. These are things that are happening right now. But most of us are silent. Most of us have become complacent. Because standing up and speaking up has a cost to it, right? There's a cost associated with stepping outside of your comfort zone and deciding that you are going to challenge the way that things are. Dr. King did that, and we saw what happened to him. Other civil rights leaders did that, and we saw what happened to them. But the reality is that they knew that they were going to lay down their lives because they wanted to see the people of this country come together. They wanted to see the people have to face the reality of the kind of country that we live in. A country that some people think is great or that they want to make great again. But for some people, anyway, but for, <laughs> for some people it has never been great in the first place because of what they've encountered. So I see Dr. King's legacy as a call to action. It's a call to action, it's a call to rise up, it's a call for us to make our rallying cry for justice, to say we are going to do something about the issues that are happening, about the inequities, that when we see racism happening in our own families, we're not just gonna brush it off, but maybe we need to challenge it. And sometimes it's going to be a private one-on-one -on -one conversation. Other times it's going to be a, a dinner table conversation. Sometimes it's going to be prayer. Sometimes it's going to be bringing it to the church. Sometimes it's going to be on social media beginning to challenge the things that people are saying. And especially those who are claiming that they're liberal or they're progressive. Right? Some people have to take their masks off. Because if you truly are progressive, then prove it. Show us any area of progress you've been able to make on behalf of, of someone who does not look like you. When you can show that, then I will believe that you're progressive. But right now, it is a label that people wear to mask 
their ineffectiveness at changing anything that has to do with the most vulnerable in our society. As people of faith, we cannot afford to wear that mask. We cannot afford to hide behind labels. We cannot afford to hide behind white privilege. We cannot afford to hide behind comfort and complacency. What we must do is make a decision that things will change today. That's what we have to do. That's what Dr. King calls us to. That's what future generations are calling us to do so that things can be better for them. I want my, great my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to live in a world where, as Dr. King said, they're not judged by the color of their skin, they're judged by the content of their character. And through their character and, and working to build a positive, powerful community, they will have adequate access to opportunity. They will be able to leave a legacy behind and not have to feel like they're less than because of what they look like or because of the language they speak or the religion that they practice or because of their sexual orientation or because they have a disability. It's time for us to shake off the privilege, to pick up the mantle, and to care about justice in our society. Thank you. You guys can have a seat. In a moment here, we're going to celebrate uh, the love feast, the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, uh, the original story that has sent King's story into motion. And Dr. Nakima Levy Pounds, I'm so grateful for you. I mean, for thousands of reasons beyond just this moment, but I specifically, as you were talking out here, was thinking about a moment with my friends who were with you this summer down in your office. And it was after the verdict came out in Philando when you looked across the room. And we were talking in this polished and like pretty way. We were trying to sound like we had our stuff together. And you said, stop it. Please stop. What are you going to do about this? And it was this pointed and yet beautiful and important moment for us. And so thank you again for coming through and bringing what you bring. There's this moment in Jesus' life at the very end of his life where he is gathered with his friends. And um, they're around a meal. And he takes the bread and he takes the wine, and it's the moments that are preceding his betrayal. And he holds up this loaf of bread, and he looks around at the face of the table, and he says, when you eat this bread, this is my body broken for you. When you take this into your body, remember me. And he held up a cup of wine. He said, this cup, it represents the blood of the new cup covenant. When you drink it, remember me. When I think about what Dr. Levy Pounds just said, and when I think about what Jesus said, there's something very powerful that we learn about what memory looks like, that you do not just bring it into your mind, you bring it into your body. You don't just talk about the story, you take it on. And so that's what we are asking and inviting everybody in this room to take part in today as we recall and remember that we are actually recommitting ourselves to the work of justice that was put into motion in the life of Jesus and that was pursued and perpetuated in the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. So how we do communion here at the table is we will have servers here on the side over here, and then gluten-free elements up here in the middle. 
Um, if you are in need of prayer or you would like someone to pray with you, we will have prayer people out in the back by the candles. This is your space. Come as you want. At this point, will you please stand with me as we say the Lord's Prayer together? There it is. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.